Hi, it's me, Alicia Holland, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Always Be My Sisters. Always Be My Sisters is the Golden Girls podcast. As I take you through each episode's synopsis, I'll also touch on the pop culture references, the oh boys of jokes that didn't age well, and the plot whoopsies. I'll even have special guests stop by to share their thoughts about the topics being discussed. So join me and my Coco as we celebrate the Golden Girls and why they are still so loved all these years later. Always be my sisters, streaming wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in the Rain would like to give a big shout out to our personal Valentines, our newest Patreon members, Mariah S. from Irving, Texas, Kimber T. from Bay Point, California, Maureen S. from Hillsboro, hey neighbor, and Sandra B. from Portland. Thanks so much, you guys, and we hope you enjoy your extra content. And if you want to hear your name being given a shout out on the show, all you have to do is find us at patreon.com slash murder in the rain. Content warning. This episode contains talks of suicide and graphic violence against women and children. Listener discretion advised. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. As you know, we record a few weeks in advance, but to those who are listening on release day, this past Sunday marked a very special day, Valentine's Day, or for those in my life, Emily's birthday. The history of Valentine's Day goes a little something like this. It's a Christian feast day celebrating a martyr named St. Valentine. St. Valentine was sent to jail and persecuted for being a minister to Christians. While there, the Lord claims that he cured his jailer's daughter's blindness and wrote her a letter which was signed, Your Valentine, thus spawning a long-held tradition of writing love letters called Valentines. Didn't he also uh, do illegal marriages? Isn't that where, like, the romantic aspect comes in? Possibly. I didn't dig that deep. <laughs> oh, well, then I'll let you know. Uh, he So they had said they didn't want the young men being married because they'd be distracted, be distracted at war. Mm -hmm. And so they had put a kibosh on marriages, and St. Valentine was secretly, secretly marrying people. Well, that's an interesting little tidbit. I like that. Now, if you ask my grandfather, he would say, meh, it's a Hallmark holiday, a day for lovers to celebrate each other, but more so to spend loads of money on chocolates and jewelry fueling consumerism. But regular folks just see it as a day to make that special someone in your life feel loved and appreciated. Now, those of you out there who, like me, may be currently single, don't fret. My favorite Valentine's Days of years past were made special thanks to my friends, not some dude who spent money on me. I mean, I'm not going to turn that down, though. I know there are those out there that get sad around this time of year because they feel lonely without a partner, or maybe they recently lost their partner. But today, I might just give you a reason to feel a little bit better about that and maybe skip next Valentine's Day altogether. Today's episode has two cases, both of which happened on Valentine's Day. I think the morals you might learn from today is that it's perfectly fine to be single, and sometimes you don't even know the person you love. And while we can't always trust strangers and the people behind an avatar online, sometimes someone you don't even know might just save the day. Now, we all love the internet. In fact, I imagine most of us can't fathom living without it. I can still remember the day I got to play on the internet for the first time. I was in seventh grade, and my friend Heidi and I got on AOL Instant Messenger to chat with boys. From that moment on, any chance I got, I would be online in chat rooms making friends and wondering if they looked at all how they described themselves. But kids, the rumors are true. There are bad people hiding on the internet. Old men hiding as young boys and girls, girlfriends catfishing their boyfriends, predators looking for their next victims. And worst of all, for every skeevy pervert on the internet, there are dozens more who share the same desires. In the first of my two Valentine's Day cases, I'd like to share the story of a man who was seeking a specific kind of arrangement on the internet. He wanted his Valentine's Day to be one that no one forgot. And to do so, he didn't need just one Valentine. He needed dozens. This is the case of Gerald Dean Crean Jr. and how he used the Internet to plot a Valentine's Day nightmare. 
In the early 2000s, Gerald Dean Crane Jr., a mid-20s man described as burly and having a proclivity for tie-dye t-shirts, moved from his home in Citrus Heights, California, to Klamath Falls, Oregon, to be with his parents. His father was sick and his mother needed help caring for him. But when Crane wasn't playing the perfect son to his parents, he was up to much more nefarious acts online. The internet was a special place for him, one where he could find people who were hurting inside just as much as he was. He could find people to talk to about his dark thoughts, people who could empathize with wanting to end their lives and leave the pain they lived with every day. Crean was preparing for a very special event in February of 2005. He was planning a party and had spent years cultivating his guest list. In a chat called Suicide Ideology, Crean had brought together over 30 women who shared his feelings that life was not worth living. He wanted to help them with their journeys by inviting them to his home in Klamath Falls, where they could enjoy one last hurrah with an orgy and then hang themselves as a group and die together. One of the women that Crean was chatting with regularly had been considering suicide for a very long time. When he approached her to invite her to his Valentine's Day suicide party, she was intrigued and even considering it. That party was planned for February 14, 2005. All 30 women had their invites, but it wasn't clear if anyone was really planning to attend. A week before the scheduled party, police received a call from a woman in Canada regarding a concerning chat she had with someone online. She explained that she was part of a group discussing a suicide party. The plan was to travel to this man's home in Oregon, have a sex party, and then everyone who attended would kill themselves. While this woman was seriously considering attending the party, she grew concerned over her most recent correspondence with the man planning the party because he mentioned children. Police took these claims very seriously, so on February 7th, they brought Crean in for an interview to discuss the recent conversation about the party. During the interview, Crean flew off the hinges and started screaming at the police. He was cursing and throwing and kicking objects around the office. The woman had given police a 10-page printout of the chat she had with Crean to illustrate why she was so concerned. So I'll go ahead and read a part of that that was published in the Albany Democrat Herald. Crane went by the name Suicide Party 2005, and the Canadian women went by Happy Love. I'll read this to you in correct English, but I'll tell you now that Crane had some very interesting spelling choices. No judgment. Alicia can attest to the creativity to my own text spelling. <laughs> Suicide Party 2005. The woman who is bringing her kids wants you to help kill them. Happy Love. Okay, Why? Suicide Party 2005. She just does. Do you want to help kill them? Happy Love. No, they're kids. Suicide Party 2005. They're 16 to 22. Happy Love. No, I don't want to help with that. I don't want to hurt anyone. Just take care of myself. Suicide Party 2005. Do you want to hold hands as we hang? Happy Love. Yes. Suicide Party 2005 then goes on to ask Happy Love if she wants to, quote, choke hang or break neck hang. He told her that he had planned to attach ropes to hooks on a reinforced beam in his computer room of his house. There was a little bit more interaction. Suicide Party 2005 wanted details on how Happy Love looked, if she watched porn, if she wanted to be nude when she died. They even went on webcam for a little bit where Happy Love tells him that he was attractive but needed to smile. Toward the end of the conversation, Suicide Party 2005 asked her if she was going to call the cops, to which she replied that she wouldn't, but thankfully, she did. Two days after the interview with police, Crean was arrested in his mom's mobile home in Klamath Falls on Wednesday, February 9, 2005. The media helped police all over the United States spread the word that they were looking for anyone who had spoken to Crean about his party. It was one of those rare times when police was thankful for the media's assistance because there were so many women to locate because they wanted to make sure they were safe and their children were safe. On the day of the party, Monday, February 14th, police sat outside Crean's mobile home prepared to meet any woman who arrived for the planned party. Luckily, no one showed up and the police didn't have to intervene. There was still a worry that people all over the world could still have planned to complete suicide that day. It was clear that not every person Crean engaged with was planning to travel thousands of miles to go to this party, but they were all well-versed in the internet and talked about doing it via webcam. 
A second phone call ended up coming in from a woman named Jamie who lived in Portland, Oregon. Her screen name was Kill Tori Spelling, and there was some speculation that she got the attention of Crean because of her screen name having the word kill in it. Maybe he was just a big 90210 fan. Well, weren't we all? Jamie contacted police to let them know that she had concerns about a suicide party that was being discussed online. In fact, there were women planning to go who mentioned they were bringing their children. Investigators seized items from the house Crean shared with his parents, including a webcam, three computers, and thousands of DVD pornography, spanning with titles like Barely Legal Females to Brother and Sister Incest. They also subpoenaed Crean's chat room records, which would have multiple people dissecting them, including the FBI, who the police asked for help reviewing. It was easy to confirm that he had, in fact, been planning a suicide party. The chat room he created on Yahoo Chat was titled Suicide Party 2005. Crean's description of the party was a sex fest that would ultimately end with everyone hanging themselves from a beam he was planning to build that would be able to hold up to 50 people. The real work began as investigators tried to find out who each of these women really were. There is a lot of privacy when it comes to online chat rooms, including the fact that we can all use anonymous names. They had 31 women they were looking to identify, and in the early stages of the investigation, they could only identify three of them. I think that's why they ended up turning to the FBI. What they ended up finding was thousands of conversations dating all the way back to the year 2000. He had been part of a suicide news group back in 2003. It was clear from his chat records that he had been seeking out women who appeared vulnerable or depressed. His intent was to convince them to do sexual acts with him before killing themselves. This story of coming to his house, having sex, and then hanging themselves naked from a beam installed in his house was a story he peddled to dozens of women over multiple years. His Yahoo instant messenger chats depicted a man who was very lonely. He told one woman, the Canadian woman who went by Happy Love, that he wanted to die because he was so ugly and no one but his dog wanted him. He confessed to her that if she would move there to be with him, he wouldn't take his own life. As the investigation continued, the media learned that this wasn't the first time police had heard rumors of a sex and suicide party. Months prior, a woman from Missouri called Klamath Falls police to alert them that one of their residents was planning a party and intended to end it with a mass suicide. At the time, police didn't find any reason to arrest Crean. Luckily for them, it appeared that even after all of these months, they still may have intervened just in time. Crean was indicted mid-February on one count of solicitation to commit murder and four counts of solicitation to commit manslaughter. He was held for $100,000 bail. The state argued to have the bail increased, but the judge declined as it was obvious his family could not even afford the original bail. The district attorney spoke to the media and described that their case was experiencing significant budgetary limitations. So what they did was end up selecting four cases that they thought were the strongest, and they only pursued those ones in court. So it's highly likely that those four were also the women that they could identify so that they could be a witness because they were having a hard time even discovering who those people were. Can we acknowledge how upsetting it is that someone could get away with something just because of a budget. a budget cut and would it have been different if they could prove somebody actually completed it mm-hmm. maybe it would be different maybe they could yeah. get more funds but yeah that yeah, is that really sense. and i mentioned that here knowing that crean admitted to speaking to 31 women about suicide and potentially convincing them to commit it makes it really hard to accept that they would only pursue four cases and to bring their children to be murdered absolutely This case was interesting because as far as we know, Crean never officially helped someone complete suicide. We know he spent years talking about it and planning for a suicide party, but he hadn't physically done anything to anyone. So evaluating his chats was key to understanding how disturbed he actually was and how they could proceed with this case. Was it all a joke? Was he serious? Did he really intend to have all of these women show up at his house and kill themselves? District Attorney Ed Caleb was quoted in a Herald and News article aptly titled Hearts and Death, where he said, quote, a suicide pact itself is not a crime, but it is a felony to cause, motivate or solicit another person to commit suicide. 
The chat records did seem to support the argument that he tried to motivate and solicit suicide with dozens of women. Crean sat in jail for seven months awaiting trial, but in September 2005, it ended up being suspended until Crean was able to be evaluated at the Oregon State Mental Hospital. Once evaluated, the psychiatrist detailed that Crean suffered from multiple mental disorders. Crean's defense attorney, Eve Merritt, said that most people agreed he was not competent for court. By October, he was officially moved to the Oregon State Mental Hospital where he could receive treatment. In 2006, Crean was found guilty except for insanity at a non-jury trial. He was sentenced to the Oregon State Mental Hospital rather than going to prison. But due to a paperwork error, a retrial was forced. Crean had given a verbal statement where he chose to forgo a jury. However, it appeared that it was not captured in a written form and he did not sign it, which was required. So due to that, the Oregon Court of Appeals agreed that he would have to go back to court and be retried for his crimes. The retrial was set to begin in 2008. This time, the document to waive a jury trial was signed by him, and he returned to the Oregon State Mental Hospital under the jurisdiction of the Psychiatric Review Board for 20 years. He was credited time he had previously served. So if you do the math, Crean's sentence will be up in 2026. As far as we know, no one committed suicide, but unfortunately, they were not able to find everyone that had spoken to him over the years. I mentioned earlier that a woman named Jamie, or screen name Kill Tori Spelling, was approached by Crean online prior to the planned suicide party. He asked her questions about suicide, most of which she thought were an online prank. After a couple of hours of speaking with him, Jamie grew concerned as he described how a woman was intending to travel all the way to Klamath Falls and bring her children along. Jamie is kind enough to join Murder in the Rain to tell us a little bit about her experience. Hi, Jamie. Thanks again for joining me to talk a little bit about this case. Before we get started, I was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about yourself. Uh, My name is Jamie. I live in Eastern Oregon. Uh, I'm married, have two pugs. Cute. (laughs) Avid book reader. So am I. Podcast listen to her. (laughs) Perfect. You're in great company then. (laughs) Perfect. So uh, let's go back to 2005. You went by the screen name Kill Tori Spelling, and Alicia will kill me if I don't ask you, where'd you come up with that name? Well, I was a very, uh, I was a hardcore 902 and or back in the day. And then Scream 2 came out, mm-hmm. and there was a Rolling Stone cover with her like in the shower, okay. covered in blood like Psycho. And I love there it. Was. That's great. I'm going to have to look for that online. She was big then. I remember yep. um, we had a magazine at my house. Like, I, I feel like it was a Playboy magazine spread. Mm. She did a bunch, not like any nude, nudie shots, but she did like a whole spread of, of photos. My stepdad had it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So on a more serious note, um, talk to me about the first time you interacted with Gerald Crean or Suicide Party 2005. Did he approach you? Yeah, I mean, this was in the days of Yahoo groups. Mm-hmm. I'm going to date myself really hard. Um, I think at one point I'd like been part of some music group, you know, on Yahoo sure. and had that name. And that he said that's how he found me, you know, was from my username. He just randomly mess- messaged me on Yahoo Messenger. So did he just target for a one-on-one chat? Did he invite you to any of his other chat groups? No, Pete. Well, I guess technically the the first contact was in Yahoo Messenger, and then he invited me to the Yahoo group where people were supposedly corresponding, mm-hmm. um, making arrangements, I guess. I don't, yeah. It was bizarre. Okay, so tell me about it. So I, I think I read an article where you said you thought he was joking at first, but then you kind of grew concerns. So why don't you take us through, you know, how it how it started, when you started getting concerns, and then when you were like, wait, this is serious. I probably should do something about this. Well, he uh, literally, like, I think the first thing he asked me was, have you ever thought about suicide? Such a, such a okay, well, opening that's a, line. Yeah, unsolicited <laughs> question. Right. <laughs> Um, and I, I just messaged back and said, well, you know, sure. Who hasn't mm-hmm. at some point in their life? Why? You know, do you want to hurt yourself? And uh, we just 
kind of started talking back and forth. And he told me where he lived, that he was working at a blockbuster video. Oh, they really? had videos. <laughs> um, that he, but he was looking forward to quitting his job so he could focus solely on planning this party for Valentine's Day. Whoa, really? Yeah. And then he sent me to like um, a website that I think it was hotornot.com or something like that with a picture of him to rate him. Oh, boy. Yes. He, he kept asking to see pictures of me. So, I actually sent him pictures of like a chick I went to high school with. <laughs> I mean, we've all, we've all done that. <laughs> I think I was friends with her on MySpace. <laughs> and, and he's just like, you know, you're hot. I'm like, well, thanks a lot, dude. <laughs> and it just got weirder after that. He, he asked me how I wanted to die, how I had thought about killing myself. And then he kind of um, just put it out there. Hey, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm setting up this, this thing for Valentine's Day for people that want to kill themselves, kind of like a party. Wow. Uh, at my house. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that that sounds awesome. What did what kind of details did he give you at the time? Uh, he told me he had built a beam, like along the structure of his house, so people could hang there. Wow. And I was like, are you are you you're serious about this? And he's like, I'm dead serious about this. And so I just kind of started messing around with it, you know, because I'm bored. Right. And started really asking him some serious questions. And it was just like, where did you come up with this idea? Why, you know, why now? What's this? Blah, blah, blah. And he was really depressed that girls didn't seem to like him and um, supposedly had found other people that were interested in it. And that they were going to go down there, that they were going to go down to his place in Klamath Falls and, and all commit suicide on Valentine's Day the next year who does that yeah <laughs> random night you know it's what's interesting is i i read an article about him interacting with another woman and sending his photo and 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 getting on webcam and her telling him he was attractive like he's not he's not an unattractive person so no it it sounds like he was very obsessed with his image and what he he was projecting that people thought he was unattractive yeah did you get that vibe from him as well? Yeah, he was very, um, he kept saying people called him a dog. Hmm. And that I don't think he ever had a girlfriend. Because he had asked me if I wanted to have sex <laughs> before, uh, we, you know, we killed ourselves. Right. And, uh, yeah, if I wanted to be naked or, yeah, it was just odd. So how long did you interact with him for? Maybe an hour, hour and a half. I got his phone number. I got his address. Wow. Where he worked, what blockbuster he worked at. Um, he, I had said, I don't have a car, so I don't know how I'm going to make it down to Klamath Falls. You know, I'm in Portland at the time. And <laughs> I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to really be able to make it. I'll see if I can catch a ride with somebody. And he said that a woman was coming down from Portland that he'd been chatting with and she was bringing four of her kids. And I was like, well, whoa, you know, like how old are these kids? And I think he even told me their ages and that they were going to kill the kids before they killed themselves or that they had talked about it. And a friend of mine was a 911 dispatcher at the time uh, back in my hometown. And so I just texted her and said, hey, you know, this weirdo just messaged me randomly on, you know, instant message. And he's telling me all this stuff. And she happened to be at work. And so she did a call and she's like, I would call Portland Police Department and just, you know, make an info. Right. Why not? You've got all his info, you know, so. And was that the only time you interacted with him? Did he try to contact you after that? No, I never. Uh, if he did, I blocked him. Mm. Yeah. And then I deleted myself out of that group and I was done. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So did you take her advice then and call police right away or did you kind of yeah. think about it? Oh, you did. I, I printed out our entire chat log. I printed out the hot or not thing with his picture. I gave him his telephone number, his address, the where he supposedly worked at, what car he drove that he told me. I mean. Good for you. You know, why not? And two cops showed up in my apartment and were just kind of, don't talk to strangers on the internet if you don't oh. want to, talk. you know, get creepy content or whatever and i was just like oh yeah okay so they're, they're vi victim blaming then or <laughs> next time i won't call so what happened after that did they i never you? no nobody ever contacted me never heard anything and it was just kind of like 
that story you tell at the bar, right? Yeah. <laughs> For the next three months. And I'm walking, um, I was working at uh, Portland State at the time mm-hmm. and going to school. And my a friend of mine called me and I just gotten onto campus and she's like, I think that guy you talked to a couple months ago just got arrested. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she just seen it, you know, online. So okay, I, I ran so- to my office and, you know, Googled, um, Klamath Falls, uh, suicide pact or something like that. And there it was. Wow. Yeah. That's it was, cra- that's crazy. Yeah. That, that's a crazy experience, especially, you know, just calling on a whim. You don't know if it's true or not. You're just right. kind of passing info. And then to find out he really was planning that other people called that must've been intense. Yeah. I just, I was really, really scared that somebody had hurt themselves, you know, mm-hmm. but luckily I don't know if anything ever really happened, you yeah. know, with anybody, but. For my, yeah. for my research, I don't think that there was evidence that anyone did, but as that's only if they could contact all of them. I don't know. For right. sure. But it's very scary that someone can kind of manipulate vulnerabilities that are in place and, and actually try to have some follow through on it. Yeah. So do you still think about it a lot? Uh, not really. Uh, you know, sometimes my friends will give me, you know, a hard time about it around Valentine's day, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> something to remember. It's just year. like one of those things. Like I was telling a friend of mine tonight, um, you know, she's a big podcast listen to her and I, uh, I was telling her about it. With her. <laughs> yeah. And she, she was just like, why did you never tell me this? <laughs> like, I never thought to. Well, you know, after so many years, you try not to oh, think yeah. about it as much, I'm sure. Well, I mean, I have to say that's amazing that you did that. Not everybody would do that because they probably would write it off as like, eh, it's just someone yanking my chain. But, you yeah. know, ha- had you not, they when wouldn't have When kids had... get involved, like, that's not a joke anymore. Mm-hmm. At all. Absolutely. So did you, what did you take away from that experience? Do you, did you like, did it change your life or do you feel like it was just one of those weird things that happened to you in life? I don't think it changed it so much. Um, I never even heard what happened with him after the fact. I think I I read somewhere that he had ended up in the state hospital, Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know if he's still there. Yeah. It's interesting because as I, I already recorded the case and basically he, he went to the hospital they had to retry him because he they never got a signature from him that he waived a jury trial. He stood in front of the, the judge. So they went back to court. It still went through same um, same sentence, 20 years. And as far as I know, he's still there, but he'd be up for uh, parole in a few years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's intense. Um, you know, hopefully he's because he's there, hopefully he's getting the care he needs because obviously he is really suffering. Um, But yeah, I'm interested to see kind of how the story unfolds um, if he he does end up leaving or if he continues to stay there. Mm -hmm. I still have that email address, so, you know. Oh, you do? Yeah. (laughs) um, That is one thing that took away. uh, My email address got posted on the front page of the Oregonian. Oh, did you get mail from that? (sighs) Thousands. And not all great ones oh no and some scary ones and um then everybody found out where i worked and oh. everybody found out where i lived i did one interview and then they were on me for about wow. seven days and i got like that little feeling of uh fear of paparazzi just a shred i'm sure yeah yeah um it was not fun it's funny you say that because I found your name out of probably that one interview, right? Nope. And it took me all of three minutes to find you and reach out. So yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I'm, we get mail too, you know, sure. it's funny. Somebody I'm on TikTok and somebody's like, I can see your last name. And I'm like, honey, <laughs> you can Google me. It will be, yeah. there. I, I'm way <laughs> past that now, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. That, that was, that wasn't fun. <laughs> so, I mean, how do you go, but did you kind of lock it down for a while? And just I not- went home. I went back to my hometown, which is you know, where I'm living now, about three hours away from Portland and mm-hmm. just like hovered down for a week with my parents, you know? Wow. Um, and then I, I came back, went to work and everything was fine. 
you know, something big happens, you know, nobody cares about that story anymore. Yeah, but I, I mean, was excited. Blessing, that, uh, blessing, I guess, in a way, but. Anderson Cooper. I thought he almost was going to say my name. <laughs> he just yeah. said it about the story. And I was like, <gasps> say my name. No, Anderson Cooper. Didn't do it. <laughs> almost. I mean, he talked about the story, though. You, yeah. had, a big, you had a big part in it. You <laughs> turned someone in. That's huge. Uh, Alicia and I, my co-host, we're always telling people like, you, you see something, you say something as cheesy as it is. You never know nope. when you're going to be the hero and you just have, you have to go with your gut, you know? Nope. Never know. You never know. So that's like the one thing we try to get through to people at the show is like, if it seems fishy, it's probably fishy. Yeah. If it's too good to be true, <laughs> it usually is. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. It was really yeah. nice to meet you. I uh, you appreciate your time. Thanks again to Jamie for joining us for today's case. Suicide is a very real concern for thousands of people. If you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. <laughs> But I did find that interesting that it was based around being sexual first and then doing that because in my head, I'm like, well, but if it's fun, you're going to release so many like and maybe want to kill yourself. I, I know it's it's like the two things he really wants to do that he feels like he can't get done in his mm. everyday life. You know, he really struggled with the idea that women didn't find him attractive, but he is not unattractive. And these women he was webcam chatting with were telling him that. It's almost like it's the. It was the only tool he had was I'm depressed and I think about suicide. I wonder if other girls do. Mm -hmm. Oh, now I can talk to girls like it's. Yeah. Oh, it might as well be Game of Thrones or, you know, where it's it's that. Connecting I'm really wondering thing. what his um, intelligence level is, too. Oh, yeah. Like an IQ score. If it seems very young, yeah. very young behavior. It's hard because when you're especially on instant messenger, I mean, I was a teenager on instant messenger. I was usually pretty honest, but. You definitely have that free reign of whatever. So to yeah. say like 30 people, 50 people are going to hang themselves on this thing I'm going to create. Didn't he live in a mobile home? Yeah, like, with his parents. So where, you know, it's he like the claims he was putting it in the computer room, a reinforced beam across the ceiling for 30 people. Like no bedroom. is. And big I never I never did see if police found something like that on the property. Yeah. I didn't mention it wasn't mentioned in the articles. So I, I think it was all talk. It does just all go to show how much he wasn't doing. You know, it's a very tricky case because first off, before I lose track, a suicide news group. Yeah. Like, what? It, I mean, so I'm thinking, is it like a notification anytime a suicide happens? Right. Or like. I mean, there is a group for everything that's online. True. But it, yeah, that's just upsetting. I thought for a second, too, that what if this was some sort of plan he had where they would die and he mm -hmm. doesn't and he gets to like if this was a trial run oh, to see if it would work. Relive it. Yeah. And then next year, you know, like a cult leader suicide party 2006. It's better than last. You know, whatever weird thing he's trying to do. It's just a really tough one for me. It's very topical because we're talking now a lot about First Amendment rights mm -hmm. and what can be said online and how much weight it has because we've seen the weight that it can have. But also, how do you manage that? Because how, how, how do you, you navigate it? How or do, how do I not just say, oh, I was kidding. I didn't No one see. Nobody showed up. That seems like a really easy case. Well, to... it was a pattern of behavior, too. So I think if it was just the one conversation in 2005, that's easy to write off as a prank. Right. But he had a pattern in all of his conversations. Suicide was his fixation. So I think they were able to prove how serious it was. But I am thankful that he doesn't just go to jail for attempting these Absolutely. things. Absolutely. I because even wrote that. I was like, I'm glad help. he's getting help. Number one. Like, that's at least... And he didn't technically... That's what came from it. Like, no one is... I mean, you're mentally harmed, but no one was harmed. Right. So, like, it's, it's not like he can't come back from that. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that, on one hand, he's being found mentally not competent for a trial or not competent for prison, you know, being found guilty but insanity... But then he can also be this mastermind 
that was going to get 50 people to bring their children and group orgy and group hanging. Yeah, like, it's a very, very intricate, mm-hmm. detailed thing. So it's like. I just feel like he was one of those people you just are in this dark pit of despair oh, yeah, and there's it's heart- no getting out of it. It's heartbreaking. I, on one hand, it's like, I, I mean, I kind of struggle because it's like, well, what are you going to get arrested for? You know, I've, It's like an outlet space to discuss it. Um, but it could be very real to someone yeah. who is looking to to Absolute, complete it. You absolutely. Know? Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, and, and I agree, I'm glad that he is getting help. Mm-hmm. But that's a very complicated case. It I would, absolutely is. I'm looking forward to listeners maybe email us or something on their thoughts on this because it's very complicated. Yeah, and of, we're all we're all in the online world. And yeah. some of us are younger or older. But what is I, that limit? And I look back to conversations I had. We did talk about very serious things with strangers on the mm-hmm. Internet. So how do you go from just a casual chat to I'm going to end my life mm-hmm. and here's how I'm going to do it. Or so, what yeah. I'm saying is serious or it's 100 mm-hmm. percent fact. So reach out if you have thoughts. Just uh, you can comment on the blog. You can email. I thought of you and your catfishing story. For another time. <laughs> <laughs> Our second case revolves around a very young couple whose relationship would end in the most tragic and unimaginable way. Delmar Joseph Anholt Jr. spent his younger years attending Catholic school. Despite coming from an appearingly good family, he still had a hard time at home. By the time he got to the seventh grade, he started abusing marijuana and acting out towards authority. He was definitely a handful for his parents, and because of this, he lived in a juvenile detention center for several months. He was even forced to live in a place called Sun Village, which was a school for troubled children. He did eventually come back and live at home and attended Roosevelt High School in Portland, Oregon. During his time there, he was regularly suspended for causing trouble, but it was in that very school where he met his girlfriend, Tara Lee McCarthy. Delmar and Tara got together when she was 15 and he was 16. Tara came from a large family from the St. John's neighborhood. Her family made the decision to move away from the area, but Tara didn't want to leave her high school or her boyfriend, so she ended up moving in with the Anholt family so she could remain at Roosevelt High School. While they were together, he continued to make poor decisions. He was arrested for theft and ended up getting just probation, but that didn't stop him from violating that probation and having to spend 14 months living in the Oregon Correctional Institution. During his sentence, Tara stayed with him. She went to school, held multiple jobs, and contributed to the Anholt family. When he was released and returned home, he refused to look for full-time work and instead let Tara continue to have multiple jobs and support him. However, the two remained close and did everything together. The pair's relationship isn't talked about in depth, so I'm unsure if it was more often loving or tumultuous, but we do know that during the time they lived together, Tara left several times to stay with her sister, so we can deduce that it wasn't a perfect match. We also know that Tara and Delmar had gotten pregnant four times over the course of four years. The first three pregnancies were terminated, but the fourth pregnancy was kept and very much wanted by Tara. In February of 1982, Tara was eight months pregnant and the couple were living together, so seemingly they were preparing to become a family. On February 14, 1982, the young couple, a now 20-year-old Delmar and a 19-year-old Tara, were hitchhiking from Portland to the Oregon coast. Their ride, a truck, started to break down, so they were dropped off outside of the Columbia Memorial Garden Cemetery in Scapoose, Oregon. It was late afternoon, and they had roughly 90 miles to go before they reached their destination. It was a very rainy day, so the couple took shelter in a barn across the street from the cemetery. The two of them had their backpack full of supplies, including clothes, food, and even camping gear. Within a few minutes of being dropped off and escaping the rain, Delmar became very upset with Tara. He started accusing her of being pregnant with someone else's baby. She refused to admit to this, which made him even more angry with her. He also started requesting that she repent to Jesus Christ. Later that evening, not long after the couple was dropped off, a state police trooper, Ron Rucker, was driving in the area when he noticed two suspicious figures in the grass. 
He got out of his car and trudged through the rain with his flashlight in hand to investigate, only to find that the figures were actually two abandoned backpacks. As he walked around the area, he crossed an embankment and noticed someone was hunched over what appeared to be another person lying on the ground. As he got closer, he discovered something terrible. I want to warn you that what I'm about to describe is incredibly gory, even for me. And I just want to make sure that I tell you one more time because I promise you won't be able to erase this from your brain. As Rooker approaches the figure, he can now distinguish a man. He can hear him muttering something along the lines of, it's okay, it's okay. As he shines his flashlight over the man to get a better look, he sees that he's hunched over a woman and he has his thumb stuck in her eye sockets. He's doing this circular motion, one that can only be described as gouging. The woman who's laying there completely still isn't making any noise, so the officer was pretty certain she was dead. The man finally notices Officer Rooker and begins to get up and walk towards him. At this point, Rooker knows he needs to get back to his car to call for backup. He realizes the situation is incredibly dangerous and he doesn't want to be alone with this attacker. He somehow very calmly convinces the man to walk back to the car with him and leave the woman's body behind. He handcuffs him, puts him in the back of the cruiser, and then calls for backup before returning to the crime scene to get a better look and take some notes. The young woman had clearly sustained unimaginable traumas. Right away, Rooker made a note that the woman appeared to be pregnant and her clothes had been partially removed. She wore a t-shirt and bra, but her jeans and underwear had been pulled down past her knees to her ankles. There was a very clear view that a sexual trauma had occurred. Her pants had puncture holes in the crotch as if there was an attempt to penetrate her through her clothing. Left inside her vagina were parts of a broken fishing pole. She lay flat on her back with her feet bound and her knees up in the air with her heels touching her backside. Around her neck was some kind of cord with slip knots, and it was attached to her wrist and ankles. This indicates a bit of knot knowledge. This is a type of knot that would tighten any time you move. So if she were to move her ankles, it would choke her throat. She also had stab or puncture traumas all over her body. Once the officers and paramedics arrived, Anholt was taken to the hospital to undergo a number of tests before being arrested. He had blood drawn, urine samples taken. Police were then notified that Anholt had been on both methamphetamines and amphetamines. This means he was hyped up on multiple types of speed. He was taken into custody and charged with murder, and not long after that, a psychiatrist was brought in to evaluate him. This man, Dr. Hugh Gardner, diagnosed Anholt with significant mental issues. Among his disorders was a severe antisocial personality disorder. He had signs of egotistical and narcissistic tendencies. Not a big shocker, but what the doctor was describing was someone who always puts himself first with little regard for anyone else's life or their safety. The doctor also later testified that Anholt's mental illnesses would not influence him in committing a murder. So while he had no care about someone's life, it's not going to be a reason he murdered someone. Plenty of people have that exact same disorder and live a fully functional life. The state medical examiner, William Brady, took Tara from the scene so that an autopsy could be given. When he examined Tara's body, his findings were terrifying. He said outside of a few cases of dismemberment and beheadings that he had worked on, this was the worst case of mutilation he had seen in his entire career. Tara's cause of death was both strangulation as well as the severe hemorrhaging from her uterus. In this kind of situation, either trauma would have killed her, so it's hard to say which was the actual cause. As you know, Tara was sexually assaulted with pieces of a fishing pole, but inside of her were also two roadside flares. She had several puncture wounds to her abdomen. Her eye sockets, face, and genitals had sustained severe burns. Her eyes had been fully removed, and eight-inch metal spikes were found forced into her pregnant abdomen. The trauma had caused premature labor, but as the birth canal was fully packed with objects, the baby had no path to be born and died of asphyxiation. 
Ann Holt went to trial, and like the previous case, it was not a jury trial. It was a four-day trial at the Columbia County Circuit Court, and it was presided on by Judge James Mason. He pleaded not guilty, and his attorney had stated that he was innocent due to his mental state and the fact that he was under the influence of drugs. And because of that, his argument that he was not in a state to be able to have some intent to kill someone. In court, the police interrogations with Ann Holt were used as evidence. In the interviews, Ann Holt said that he became violent towards Tara after she refused to admit that the baby wasn't his. And shocker, it was his. He described how he chased her through the cemetery, and when he finally caught her, he started punching her in the abdomen until she fell to the ground. He believed the child was, quote, demon seed, and he needed to kill it. He proceeded to bind her legs and wrists before driving the metal stakes into her body while she was alive. He then went on to commit the other atrocities to her body while she was alive, as well as the others he did after she died. Anholt described that he had intended to bury her there in the cemetery and try to get away, but he was interrupted when the officer showed up. So I kind of ask you this, if it had been a jury trial and I was on this jury, the argument that his his lawyer made about him not having mental capacity was kind of out the window with that. Like he was clearly planning ahead. Right. So he had mental capacity. He could intend to kill someone if he intended to to hide it. On Tuesday, May 28, 1982, Ann Holt was sentenced to life in prison after being convicted of the torture murder of his 19-year-old girlfriend, Tara McCarthy. The death of his child couldn't legally be considered murder. And I know most of us hate that. We've talked about it before in one of your more horrifying cases. Mm -hmm. But a baby, as our law states, isn't a human isn't considered a person until they've taken that first breath. And since his child could not escape the birth canal, it never took that first breath and was never technically deemed human. That's surprising since it died of asphyxiation. But it never... Meaning know, it was trying It was trying to. to take that. Well, it was a full-term baby. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder... I, but it was I, also the 80s. Oh, yeah. And I wonder, too, if maybe prosecution didn't push that because they didn't want to lose the case, case based over on that, that. technicality yeah. yeah yeah they had enough with the torture killing yeah. there isn't a lot online about what has happened since he went to prison with the exception of a single article that mentions quote he was sentenced to life in prison on may 25th where he remains until this day however i'm not sure if that's the case I was able to find a little bit of info on three websites that do like mugshot and jail bookings. And it said that he was booked in 1995. So in December of 1995, a Texas jail booked him on what they called an Oregon hold. And then it was noted that he was released to another agency in 1997. So I think that means that he transferred there and likely got transferred elsewhere. But he could very well have been released because, as we know, a life prison term isn't always was life. It, it could it be life 20 with years. Was it possibility of parole? I didn't. There's no information on it. And um, he's definitely not in Oregon. He's out of our Oregon prison system. Otherwise, I would have been able to find that information. Really? So, so my concern is somewhere. he is released if if he did fulfill his term. Because at 82, that was a long time ago. But also, that's our judicial system. It is. He served his time. He did the crime. He served his time. And because Hopefully of our he system, had we're supposed to say, and now here's your next chance. Yeah. So as horrific as... It's either he's work. in his 60s and a free man or he is in another state's prison system. I'm going to guess after time in prison and drug doing that 60 would seem like a little bit of a reach. Maybe he into. he was like a fit person. So it, it's hard to say. Yeah. If anyone has a. The ability to look that up, give us a call. Do you have any new neighbors that came from the Pacific Northwest? Ask them what they did for 20 years. He had years. long, long reddish hair. Check our blog for a picture of him. Um, so one thing that came out of this case that I had to bring up today was there was a lot of rumor about him being part of the occult. So it was Very the 80s. 80s. <laughs> so it's the 80s. So take it with a grain of salt. But the rumor was that at some point he got his hands on a calf and he butchered it for a ritual. Um, but like I said, I it was satanic panic. I think 
he did horrific things that people wanted to explain away as like only a, a cultist would do right. this. And then also let's go back to his comment to his girlfriend about I need you to repent to God and this is demon seed. Personally, I would think he would be trying to get demon right. seed if he was in the occult. Right. You know, so I had to I write think that off. He was someone on really intense drugs. Yes. I and agree. it was the eighties. And he was and... young. His brain wasn't even fully formed when right. he was doing drugs. Right. And so you're on this really intense drug that really messes with your brain. And being that young and now your girlfriend's pregnant and all of that stress, pressure, all of that deadly combination, clearly. And that can be what it is. It doesn't have to be he was in a cult. And how interesting for the cop to go by and then to stop to be like, what's going on over there? Yeah, he was doing like routine traffic stops. And then he drove by the cemetery and saw big backpacks. Like, thank goodness for him. Yeah, just like actual patrolling. An actual <laughs> cop. So, Take I that mean, back. that's... <laughs> but, you know, he could have potentially gotten away with it. I mean, they... My guess, if the I cop, think it would be a little sloppy. Yeah, but... if the cop hadn't been there, they would have known it was him that done something with the girlfriend, even if she was missing and they didn't find her body. But that what if there been... was a fresh grave and he pulled what I would yeah. do, which yeah. is a double burial? Obviously. Um. Yeah. I. Yeah. I. He would have been caught because. Yeah. I. I mean, drug, drug-related violent crime is typically very messy. Yeah. There isn't a lot of uh, perfection with the yeah. cleanup. So I. I do think he. He would have been caught. Yeah especially since they were like a known couple but yeah i think goodness he was caught in the act mm -hmm. so he could be taken off the streets mm -hmm. and after all of that i hope everyone feels a little bit more comfortable if they don't have a valentine this year because i think i've shown you today that sometimes it's not all that it's cracked up to be and on a more serious note i do want to leave you with some helplines because it is a challenging time out there and if you need help we want to make sure you get it click on the show notes and you'll find several resources Now, we all love the internet. In fact, I imagine most of us... Most of us? <laughs> I'm your host for the internet, Daffy Duck. <laughs> we received this amazing CD in the mail Shut up. for 30 days of free internet. <laughs> oh, my God. We Oh, my God. We did. <laughs> like every month. I forgot about that. Okay. Second take. <clears throat> Just forget the 30 previous. <laughs> Patreon shoutouts. Shout out. And you gotta do your <clears throat> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. I thought that was fake. Oh, we got a new Patreon. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. <laughs> Please put that in. <laughs>